a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hi, I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and this is a Deeper Look podcast. As our returning listeners know, this year, we're talking about the trends that will shape the future of human development. With the advent of the pandemic in 2020, we're getting a look in real time at how a global pandemic has both accentuated, amplified, and accelerated some of the trends that we've been discussing on the podcast. Two of the watchwords that have come up as a result are adaptability and resilience. And it's something we speak a lot about at FHI 360, the need to adapt our practices and to be resilient in the face of massive disruption. Today, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak with a futurist, Lars Gustafsson a leading partner for the Fourth Sector Futures Group. Lars, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Lars, I think many people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the term CFO or Chief Financial Officer. Many organizations have a CFO. Far fewer organizations have a CFO who is a Chief futurist officer, but I see that that's one of the titles you've had in your career. You have a fascinating career working with civil society organizations in international development. Can you tell me what exactly is a futurist and how did you work in international development or in human development as a futurist? Well, to start with, I guess uh, I can't help myself. My my head is wired as a futurist. I've always been looking at issues 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, just the way my, my head works. So the role of a futurist, particularly in, in the space that I played with World Vision International and in international development as a whole, was basically trying to help, let's say in World Vision's case, answer questions like, are we relevant 20 years from now, 10 years from now? What are the big megatrends that we need to be prepared for? What are the potential disruptors that will drive us out of business or make us irrelevant? What does the life of a child look like 10 years, 20 years from now? And are we actually set up towards meeting a child's needs or, or those needs of youth or those needs of, of society as a whole? During that time that I spent, I spent probably 70% of my time actually outside World Vision interviewing uh, and rubbing shoulders with private sector, public sector, UN actors at kind of the top of the, the, the policy realm, but then also beneficiaries, victims of disasters, and the poor at the grassroots end, trying to ask the same kind of questions and gather insights as to what's working and what's not, and what do futures actually look like. So I wasn't so interested in gathering information as such. I was more interested in looking at insights. I think that's what a, a futurist a good futures does is seeking for the insights. You're currently a partner at Fourth Sector Futures Group. Can you just tell me a little bit about what the fourth sector is? Sure. Uh, the fourth sector is effectively the, the business space at the intersection between one, the public sector, two, the private sector, and three, the civil society sector. 
or said another way, and perhaps using a metaphor, which is a set of gears, it's the putting into motion and synchronizing the now four gears by adding into it the so-called fourth sector. So the fourth sector idea is not new as such. It's been often ignored, avoided, bypassed, challenged, or even overlooked. But the new today is that each of these three sectors are starting to pivot or bend towards each other. And as each sector over the recent years is learning that we need each other. Uh, the problem has been that these gears or sectors have often been running independently, not synchronized well, or simply spinning. Development agendas have been minimized rather than maximized as a consequence. And also development gains have tended to run parallel to each other instead of in harmony with each other. And a lot of leverage has been subsequently lost. Let's explore those four gears uh, today. What are the megatrends that are going to affect the way we as a global community address human development needs? So as a futurist, what megatrends are you tracking right now? Over the past five years, I've been tracking 11, but the most relevant ones, I think, in, in my opinion, are three, what I call the pivot from rural to urban and the pivot from civil society to civil corporation, and the pivot from physical aid to digital aid. Of those three, the first one, in my viewpoint, is the most interesting one, it's the most serious one, it's the most disruptive one of all 11, particularly when it comes to how do SDGs play out, who's who in the zoo, both currently and in the future of development itself, including humanitarian aid. So that's the pivot from rural to urban. I think the world population became majority urban in uh, 2006 is the date that sticks in my head when more than 50% of the global population was living in cities. Why do you put that as the most significant of those three megatrends that you just described? All right, some quick background perhaps, just to set the stage and remind us in terms of numbers. So if we look at Africa today, almost six people out of 10 live in cities. It's the fastest urbanizing continent. If we look at Asia, about seven people out of 10 live in cities. If we look at the Americas, mainly talking about Central America and Southern America today, almost nine out of 10 people live in cities and is the most unequal continent. Unequal in terms of economic inequality? Yes. Well. I don't know if, if we want to limit it to economic inequality, although that's probably the, the primary aspect there, but inequality as a, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Okay. Social inequality, access Religious. to upward mobility, those, those types of factors. Right. Access to technology, gender, ethnicity, race, economics, social, violence. It's a complicated continent, so it, it's the most unequal continent is how it's often described. If you look at, say, by 2030-ish or so, these regions will continue to move towards cities where the average will be around nine people out of 10 in all regions. Let's say if we look at post-World War II, right, or shortly after that where international aid started to take root, and then when we got into the early 70s with the Ethiopia crisis and moved on from there, development was largely designed and planned around rural development. So whether we're talking about donors, the implementers, the NGOs, civil society, local and host governments, all of us were trained on rural development. So we've been tooled up to do uh, rural development since then. In effect, we've not made that switch. 
I certainly started working in rural development, and I can relate to the point that you're making. When you say we haven't made that switch, you mean that the donors and the international organizations, whether it's a UN organization or a civil society organization, haven't made both the middle and the operational switch from a rural development orientation to an urban development orientation? Yes. So if you look at it from the top, let's say 90% of the actors working in international development, most of these have not been able to make that switch or have chosen not to make the switch. Only a few have. And then if you look at the available resources by the, the traditional donors and new donors, most of the traditional money has been removed from the rural bucket towards other priorities. But the megatrend for NGOs, if I may say it that way, or INGOs, is we have to find new business models. We will be disintermediated out of our roles if we don't move towards blended modeling, different kinds of financing, because it just simply isn't there. If you look at what are the urban tragedies or urban needs versus rural, well, the top killers or hazards in urban settings are car crashes, respiratory disease, drownings, violence and gangs, urban diseases and tobacco. Urban hunger is completely different than its rural cousin. And the urban is aging towards youth, whereas the rural is aging towards elderly. So there's a long list of significant differences. There is a huge mismatch between how we were as in INGOs and the whole aid sector as such, as we've tooled up over the past many decades to where we need to be now and where we need to be going now. So that's the first of the three mega trends that you identified. The second one was a transition from civil society to civil corporation. I think that's how you put it. What do you mean yes. by that? Well, I think we understand civil society, the part that we understand perhaps less so as civil corporation. So let me start with a, a metaphor of a sphere. So there's 7.4 billion people living on the planet today. Four billion live inside this so-called center of the sphere. Imagine the globe. These four billion live under $5 per day. Of this four billion, two billion live under $2 a day. One billion live under $1 a day. And in Africa, it's 78 cents. That's kind of the space that civil society has said, we occupy this space. We do poor. We do poverty. We understand poverty. Private sector and public sector, they don't. So you need to write us checks so that we can do good development work in this space. That's reversing now because the private sector has discovered that that $4 billion is a very large number. This marketplace is actually a viable market. And so in this sphere, those who used to be in the center, the aid actors, whereas those who lived in the periphery, private sector and public sector, those roles are being completely reversed or switched today. And I think that's a good thing. That's good for long-term development because those people living in the center, the four billion that I mentioned, they potentially will be far less dependent on charity and philanthropy as their long-term solution. It'll be business models where private sector are standing up their new internal verticals to address how they can better function and serve and, and redesign their systems and structures to benefit the poor. There's been a lot written and said about the private sector or the commercial companies 
taking on social responsibility and recognizing that it's for their own profitability and good, as well as the community's good, that they play a positive role in society and not simply try to maximize profits. Now, it sounds like you're confident that that kind of transition with the private sector playing that more responsible role is happening. I'm less sanguine about it. I've been disappointed. It seems to me that there's a lot of rhetoric from private sector leaders about their responsibilities, but that it's mostly window dressing or or public relations. I haven't seen the follow-up in terms of real investment from private companies in society, other than those investments that enhance their bottom line. The McKinsey Group did a study, oh, maybe it was four or five years ago, where they, they were trying to address the question, you know, what does the world of global transnational corporations look like, particularly in the developing world? What is their role and where, where does this all go to in the next 10 years or so? What they discovered was that there are currently about 8,000 global transnational corporations. About 80% of these are based in northern countries, and about 80% of their profits and gains go back to northern countries. But looking forward in their estimates and study, somewhere between 2025 and 2030, there will be another new set of about 7,000 companies and corporations who will be formed or evolved, of whom 80% of those will be based in southern countries of which 80% of their profits and gains will stay in the South. In addition to that, they also discovered that of the current set and of the future set, about 10% of transnational corporations have gone beyond, have already gone beyond the so-called conversation around corporate social responsibility. It's more of a a conversation around aid and, and charity and philanthropy. Companies deeply aspiring to create markets and do social good or business for good, if you wish, in these economies. So if you look at 10% of 8,000, that's 800 companies around the world who are already involved in one way or another. I think the problem from our vantage point, if our means civil society actors, we don't understand private sector, and that's been the main problem. We don't speak the same language. And so we don't measure them the same way. We don't address them the same way. We don't have the same expectation. It's different language altogether. Whereas if you look at and work with and through the private sector itself, they have begun to evolve their own language, which I'm finding is fascinating. We're at the early stages of this, so Patrick, you're right. It's easy to be a little bit cynical today. But if we talk about megatrends, these are the projected trends and changes that we'll see by private sector. That's hopeful. That is hopeful. I wonder about the 80% of the 8,000 businesses that you project will be created in poor countries. We're a big fan, I'm a big fan of social enterprise and of private enterprise in general. So I, I do see private enterprise as one of the engines of raising living standards. There's two things I struggle with. One is that the track record in affluent countries is that sort of unbridled growth of private enterprise uh, results in growing inequality. At least that's what we are seeing in the U.S. since the 1970s or early 80s, so for 40 years. 
this trend of growing inequality. And if these new companies that you project will be formed in the developing countries follow the example from the US and Europe, that could just lead to more inequalities. And then the second thing that I've been grappling with is around growth as the only model for increasing prosperity and for maintaining stability in human society. So right now, that's the model that we're using, that there needs to be continuous growth, population growth, economic growth. And I worry about the sustainability of that, particularly you know, over 30 or 40 or 50 years, and whether we should be trying to reimagine a different kind of development model that does not rely on constant growth. The reliance on growth, I think, is very much, very much more of a, a North American concept. Biggest, better, we're the biggest, more money, market-driven mechanisms are what the world needs to solve its problems. So growth is basically our mantra. Whereas in other parts of the world, where they're talking about Asian economies or European economies, it's always been less about growth than it has been about collaboration. Where civil society has needs and input, where the public sector says, how can we help? And private sector says, we believe we have some tools and ideas. It's always those three groups working together to create a better society. If you look at the list of the 10% global transnational corporations, generally you will see it's Asian or European companies who are doing the most business for good through collaborative mechanisms where growth is not the objective, where building better societies is, because building better societies will ultimately lead to better markets, which will ultimately lead to more stable markets, which will ultimately lead to more profits. Whereas the American model is often the other way around. I take your point, but I still think that commercial companies in Africa and in Asia and in Europe also are looking at their sales and their revenue. The whole system is set up to reward companies that grow, that increase sales, that increase revenue and to punish ones that don't grow. And so that set of incentives really drives human behavior at a societal level. And while I've always been an advocate for private enterprise, and I think it's an essential component of any national strategy for increasing people's liberty, their own personal agency, and their well-being, I worry about the contradiction of a strategy or a system that relies on ever-expanding growth. I think that it will come up against some physical limits that then will create crises that we don't know how to resolve. Yeah, I mean, what you just said now, I would tend to agree with that. But I think some of the, the good news within this conversation from emerging markets is if you take India, for example, where they've worked with northern transnational companies for decades to produce, let's say, very expensive equipment in the health space. Whereas India will say, we know what we need here. We don't need 95 gadgets or 99 buttons to do what we need here. We need three or four. So an instrument that costs you know, $200,000 in Germany may cost $5,000 in India. But it's their local innovation. It's their local companies. And they're working on local solutions. 
Other examples have to do with maybe global insurance companies who charge high premiums in the north. But in developing countries, they're using satellite imaging for indexing to reduce premiums, you know, from hundreds of dollars per month down to dollars per month mm-hmm. for the local poor and providing access to insurance coverages that in northern countries take for granted, which have never existed for the most part for the common person in the South. Well, that kind of links to what I think was your third mega trend, which I think you described as a pivot to digital technology. You know, one of the frequent responses when challenged about is continuous growth a sustainable strategy is that technology will continue to create efficiencies and to essentially solve problems so that it will be sustainable, both at an environmental level and also in the kind of systemic aspects that you were just talking about in terms of innovation that reduces costs, increases efficiency, spreads the benefits of technology around the world. Can you say more about your third megatrend? Yeah, I mean, some immediate benefits have been in the emergency response space. And I've worked in emergency response for a very long time. What you typically see where you have a, a mega disaster happen in Haiti or the Philippines or in Indonesia or in Iran, huge mobilization of supply chains, hundreds of millions of dollars. In World Vision, for example, Haiti, the earthquake that happened, in, we raised $300 million in 12 weeks. What do you do with that kind of money? First thing that happens is you got to hire staff. And second thing is you have to mobilize supply chain. So you end up spending hundreds of millions of dollars in stuff. The same thing in Indonesia, the same thing in Iran, the same thing in Philippines, and over and over. So what's happening is the mobilization of things is transitioning to the mobilization of digital technology, where the locals can have more access to their their own local needs and solutions. That's happening in the area of digital money, digital health, digital trade, digital commerce, digital education digital entertainment, and the whole future of work. Local supply chains are increasing. Global supply chains are transitioning. It's messy right now. I don't know where all this will land. But in the end, I guess the greatest benefits will be to local and regional solutions as opposed to what we've been accustomed to is mainly global solutions. Global solutions are very non-resilient during crises. Local solutions are more resilient. Maybe that's another megatrend that is connected to technology, but it's more than technology. A trend towards local action or local solutions that we see reflected both in politics now with the kind of anti-globalization move, but also we just see as practical response to problems people face. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. Now, these three megatrends that you've described, the transition from rural to urban, the transition from civil society-based action to more civil corporation-based action, and then the pivot to digital technology, those three trends, they're very operational. When I've asked other guests on a deeper look about what they see as shaping the future of human development, the number one trend that people cite is climate change. Is it that you're defining in very practical operational terms 
and that these things will then be shaped by broader phenomena like climate change? The way I treat climate change in my mind is that climate change impacts all megatrends. It's not a megatrend as such, but the impacts of climate change manifest themselves differently within each of those so-called 11 trends, or the three that we've just talked about, big time. We can talk about climate change as a megatrend and kind of clinically carve out what those impacts look like. But at the end of the day, climate change is not a standalone trend. It's integral to all megatrends. Yeah. Might be considered as kind of an accelerator towards both good things and bad things, helpful things and harmful things within each of the trends. Right. I mean, it's a global phenomenon that is going to shape human behavior and therefore perhaps be an accelerant or be a, a driver of these trends that you're forecasting. I would see population as similar or demographic change as a similar kind of overarching phenomenon that will shape human behavior. It's not just population growth. So you know, we'll see Africa become the most populous continent by the end of this century, is what's currently forecast. But it's also population shrinkage in countries like Japan. Their population is forecast to go from 130 million people today to about 60 or 70 million people in 2060, so in 40 years. Futurists like yourself are still trying to figure out how will nations cope with those kinds of forces unleashed by demographic change? Is that something that you've looked at? Yeah, exactly. To your point on population, age applied across all countries or regions around the world is very different. That'll have a tremendous impact on development. Pandemics, like we're seeing today, is not a megatrend per se. If you look at global health, We've seen SARS, we've seen Ebola, we've seen bird flu, but this one's like something we've never seen before. Pandemics are not megatrends, but they are great accelerators. And so I don't think the pandemic that we're seeing right now is going to change the megatrends that we've talked about. Population, same way. If you look at population today, one out of seven people on the planet is, a, is an immigrant. Three quarters of those are internal displaced populations one quarter are international immigrants. That number could potentially double over the coming years if we don't handle a pandemic properly or if we have other similar global hazards such as the pandemic or climate change. So Lars, do you see massive migration and displacement as a trend or as an accelerator? Originally, I saw it as an accelerator, but now I think I'm seeing it as a trend. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. I like the way you're conceiving of trends at a sort of human behavior level versus what you're calling the accelerators, which are these mega phenomena, which drive and accelerate human behavior. Now, I know that many of the listeners of A Deeper Look are very interested in how we will organize ourselves as institutions, as organizations, as communities to address human development needs in the future. And you've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation the need for new business models. Can you say a little bit more about what those new business models are and what they'll look like? 
Yes, I think that depends on on who we're talking about, business models for what institution. So if we start with the set of UN institutions and agencies, for their business models or their institutions were mostly set up post-World War II or during the Cold War years. These are all state-focused institutions. So while much of that's still relevant, the UN needs to recalculate its role with the world's top 50 megacities. Let's take the country of Peru. 14 out of 15 people in Peru live in Lima. What's the role of state in a country like Peru? Wow. Versus the role of municipalities. Now, there are other cities in Peru, too, but the, the one person who lives in the rest of the country lives in the rest of the cities and rural areas. So this is just one example for Latin America. I could have mentioned many, many, many cities in Latin America where that's the same idea. And these other regions around the world and continents are moving that direction as well. If you would do a power mapping exercise around various states as it relates to the UN and UN's role, that has to be completely recalculated, particularly when you look at already today, the world has more than 50 megacities that have over 10 million people in each. And many of these are in developing countries. Maybe a second UN example might be the Blue Helmets. Which are the peacekeepers, the UN peacekeepers. Exactly. So the UN peacekeepers are designed to deal with inter- and interstate conflict, whereas today's conflicts are often in urban settings where policing forces are needed, not militaries. The UN has never created a policing force, ever. That's not what they do. But that's where the primary need is. If we look at the business models for OECD countries, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the top 30 uh, most wealthy nations on the planet, the OECD countries, those donor countries, about 26 of them, they've already declared that they will shift their focus in, in the bottom two-thirds of the world's emerging democracies. Their re research demonstrates that what they need to focus their business on, collaboration and business in the emerging world, so it's about 75 countries, they need to focus on three ministries, which they've determined will have the foundation for a peaceful society, for a peaceful nation. There's the Minister of Justice and Law, the Minister of Defense and Security, and the Minister of Finance and Treasury. What's necessary for a commercial operation to function, first and foremost, there has to be stability and security. Second, you have to have a justice system that protects private property and that enforces contracts. And then third, you've got to have the infrastructure that is built by mobilizing domestic resources and managing, good management of public resources. So those three functions, justice, security, and finance, are the enablers of a healthy commercial sector. If you look at the business models as it relates to INGOs and how they interact with what I just described, it has been a decision made by the OECD donor countries. 90% of our current aid basket, which is about $130 billion, is going to be realigned or rechanneled to these 75 countries or to these three ministries in the name of accelerating global peace. The remaining 10% left for NGOs, including the UN, is already earmarked for new disasters and emergencies, not current ones, but new ones, or for fragile state contexts. So INGOs are not prepared to lose this funding, and most will not survive. And then maybe I should mention the private sector. I think they will do well, 
as I mentioned earlier. However, we will see some major disruption to northern companies, but major innovation in southern companies. So to answer your question directly, I would say that most, if we pick, let's say, INGOs, the more progressive and successful INGOs will have developed two verticals, a vertical that handles charity and philanthropy, and a second vertical that handles market-type mechanisms. And those two are like water and oil. They don't mix well. But there are examples of international development organizations who've already crossed that bridge and succeeding quite well in that space and in blending those two. So the hybrid business model, the blended business model, and using the uh, business model canvas, which is a very simple tool with nine questions, basically force you to look at things which are tangible as opposed to just theoretical. Yeah, I strongly agree with your overarching view with respect to new business models for international development organizations or human development organizations, that there are those two verticals, one that is more philanthropic and charitable, and the other which is market-driven and really around being a social enterprise, as well as being a charity or a philanthropy. I also see that kind of hybrid model where organizations that can combine the capabilities that allow them to operate effectively in both those realms and then to mix them together where appropriate it will differentiate those organizations that are resilient and are able to carry out their mission and those that falter. We need to convene, connect, and catalyze. That's our core role as an NGO. I would say the UN needs to probably take note of that as well. And perhaps some of the, the more religious institutions who have been around for many centuries should take interest in that idea as well. It is not about growth, as you pointed out earlier, as much as it is about how can we serve better in convening, connecting, and catalyzing. We've never been really good at raising money. Charity and philanthropy has never really built any society or moved any society or nation from being poor to prosperous. There are no models that exist where that's happened. Right. I think that is a terrific uh, set of insights that you've just shared, Lars. And I think this idea of organizations being able to articulate a vision that is not a, about growth and increasing revenue or increasing donations, but that accepts that to be more effective and to really fulfill their mission or to carry out their charitable purpose, that that may require that they envision a future where they shrink and they play a different kind of role than they've played in the past. I think that's very relevant for many, many organizations and something that is extremely difficult for organizations, both uh, boards of directors, leadership, and the rank and file to come to terms with. Exactly. I agree. There's one thing you haven't talked about, and perhaps it's an accelerator or maybe it's a trend, but it's politics. And what we've seen over the last, say, five to 10 years is this shift away from a move towards more democratic societies and more open space for civil society to a closing of civil society space 
and the move towards more authoritarian and in some cases totalitarian governance. Where do you see that political trend that we're observing fit into your overall concept of the future? Well, maybe I have a, another perspective. I'm not saying that yours is right or wrong. I'm wondering if that's maybe the wrong question. Perhaps these are the wrong focus for the 21st century, in other words, focusing on politics. Politics will always shift and be complicated. Not that we need to be naive or should be naive or ignore politics, but I think rather we should encourage the shift to focus on local relationships that matter, to municipal ministries that matter, and to specific individuals holding exceptional powers and influence. We should focus, for example, our advocacy efforts on the 1% who have the keys to powers and change, and less on the 99%. I would say that 99% of our organizations have always focused on the public sector and the common people who actually truly don't necessarily have the, the same keys to power as the 1% who do. We should engage in politics, I think, only as a last resort. I know that might sound controversial. We must stay focused on our mission. We should invite power holders from the top 1% and the bottom 1% to meet and build together. Then our role should be to convene, connect, and catalyze and get out of the way. I think that is a very interesting and contentious point of view. Many people on the Deeper Look podcast, many previous guests, have made the point that you can't separate human development work from the politics. And what I hear you saying is we should separate the human development work from the politics. I'm also saying whose politics? If we assume power to change society lays at the feet of the traditional actors who we've typically dealt with as the right political places and spaces and individuals, then I'm suggesting today that I think we need to recalculate and rethink that. But traditionally, we've focused on national governments and large institutions, whether they're governmental ministries or academic universities or institutes or big corporations. But we've looked at those large institutions and their leaders as that 1% that hold power. Are you suggesting doing something differently? Yeah, I would say that there are 200 families who own and control 99% of the world's power and wealth. But the point is, when did we as a system of international development experts and thought leaders, along with our resources and systems, actually try to focus on 10% of that 200? Or in the United States, there are 400 families who own and control 95% of this country's power and wealth. The European continent, there are about 2,000 families across those, what, 26-plus countries. So on the one hand, that crowd, depending on the region or geography you're talking about, are very rarely summoned, invited, engaged. Many of them would like to, but they don't know how. They haven't been at the table. They haven't been invited to the table to join. So that's kind of the 1% story. The other percent story, our role of state, I think, is getting less and less relevant, and the role of mayors are increasingly more and more relevant. So if we would make a pivot or shift in politics, I think we can make a lot more smart advancements with refocusing and engaging at the municipal level rather than at the state level. And that's certainly true for the UN level. Very interesting perspective. Lars, thank you so much for sharing 
you're looking to the future. What you see is the megatrends. Now, this year, on a deeper look, I'm asking each of our guests a, a final question. As you look into the future and you look at the challenges that confront us, you look at the way we're addressing those challenges, are you optimistic about our ability to overcome these challenges and to continue to progress and build healthy, prosperous societies? Or are you pessimistic about what the future holds? Overall, I am an optimist. That's my natural default. And at least when considering global development in the medium to long term, I guess I would say I'm much less optimistic about the short term, largely due to the erosion of trust within and between nations, leaders, and publics. I'm more optimistic for those nations whose governance models are built on the idea that the well-being of society as a whole is what matters, and where there is a constant interaction between public, private, and civil society. These societies have deep cultures that celebrate the us and the we, and these societies tend to be robust and resilient. Uh, generally, their collective culture is designed around the idea of for the common good. I'm much less optimistic for those nations whose governance models are built on the idea that the well-being of markets or the private sector and the wealthy is what matters. These tend to celebrate and protect the I or the me or the mine. These societies tend to be much more volatile in times of stress and crises, and we're seeing that even today with the COVID-19 pandemic. Generally, the collective culture is designed around the idea of for my individual good. So maybe that's not the most pleasant way to answer your question or end my remarks, but that's how I might view your question today. Lars, I think that the way you have reflected on optimism and pessimism, both in the short and the medium to long term, provides a very wise perspective on the question of what the future holds. Thank you so much for being on A Deeper Look and sharing those perspectives with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for this fascinating discussion. I invite you to share this episode, post your comments and thoughts on the trends you see shaping the decade ahead. I'd love to hear some of your reactions to Lars' points of view about what the future holds. Join us next month for another episode of A Deeper Look.